Hello, welcome to this Research and Innovation podcast of Leeds University Business School. I'm Anina Kaltenbrunner. I'm a professor of global economics at the economics department of the business school. And I'm joined by Bianca Orsi, a lecturer in the same department. Hi, Bianca. Hello, everybody. Happy to be here talking to you. Thank you. And Sophia Kuhn-Lenz, who is a lecturer, a senior lecturer. She's recently been promoted at Manchester Metropolitan University. Hello, Sophia. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. Sophia did her PhD with us at Leeds, so we are very happy to have her just across the Pennines. So we would quite like to do this podcast on our recent paper, which is about central bank digital currencies and the international payment system, demise, the demise of the US dollar. So Bianca, Sophia and I have come together to ask the question whether central bank digital currencies, and Sophia is going to tell us a bit more about that in a minute, will change or will fundamentally change the structure of the international monetary system, i.e. question the, the dominant role of the dollar in that, in that international monetary system. Now, maybe to kick us off, so one question we always get is, well, what is a CBDC? What, is that, what does that actually mean? And Sophia being our expert on that, Sophia, do you want to tell us a bit about what actually is a CBDC and what does it stand for? Yes, happy to. So very recent topic, a lot of writing about this topic, specifically with the Bank of England announcing that they might be going or will be going towards the CBDC in the near future. So what what do we really mean when we talk about CBDC? Of course, it's a central bank digital currency. And the name itself kind of already tells it's going to be a digital type of money, but it's nothing like cryptocurrency. So there's a misconception here a lot of times. So central bank digital currencies, what we see with research, mostly what we look at right now is currency or money for the public within a specific country. It's just like the UK, for example. And those type of currencies or this type of CBDC is called the retail CBDC. So for people who are now theoretically using cash to make everyday payments, you know, for your groceries, for dinner, for cinema, where you would in the past, let's say, use cash to make these payments. Now, what we see a, a movement away from cash towards other types of money, the central banks are saying, well, we need to retain our status, we need to retain this type of cash, just we also need to go with the times here. So what we will try to offer, what we would try to innovate here is a digital version of this cash. So once we talk about a CBDC within an economy, so within a country or jurisdiction, um, we would really talk about digital cash, exactly that. So it'll be denominated for the UK, for example, in pounds. It will be legal tender. It will buy your groceries just like cash now does. It will be tied to the value, it will be issued by the central bank. Yeah, so, so all of these things that we already know with cash, that's what we will see for the UK. The difference here just is really that it will be digital. Yeah. So the risk-free nature of this type of money, the non-speculative nature of this type of money. And, and the reason why, or one of the reasons why the UK, for example, is steering towards this CBDC is not because, yes, also we see changes in technology, but what we've seen over the past decades is really a decline in, in the cash usage here. Yeah. So people still have a lot of cash, Somehow, so yeah, so we see there's a lot of cash, so banknotes and coins somewhere in the system, but people are not using this type of cash or this type of money anymore to make actual payments. They're using other types of money or money-like instruments to make payments. Specifically, once we look at international payments, we get to that in a little bit, 
But yeah, for the for the domestic context, we've seen a decline here, and the central banks are simply trying to address that. So that's for the domestic context, mostly retail CBDCs. Once we look at the international context, and this is what we did with this paper, quite early stages, yeah. So so there was not much, or there's not much with regards to research or how exactly this is going to be set set up. But what we're seeing now is that mostly we would have research or you know it looks like as if we're going in the direction of wholesale cbdc's and that means really big payments yeah big payments between financial institutions between financial actors that take place not so much but the value is bigger and what the aim here really is is to improve international payments to make it more efficient quicker and to give we talked about this in the paper specifically for emerging economies to give them a chance to kind of like detach from the U.S. dollar dominance. And the U.S. dollar dominance, that's something Bianca maybe can talk about a little bit later. So I've mentioned already that there's issues with regards to the understanding of CBDCs and cryptocurrencies. So of course, cryptocurrencies are nothing like Yes, central bank digital currencies. They may use the same technology, and a lot of central banks are really researching into this blockchain decentralized ledger technology. But the the liability structure, so who backs that type of money, obviously is not given. So for cryptocurrencies, what we see specifically with Bitcoin and Ethereum, or these you know highly decentralized currencies, to call them currencies really is incorrect. They should be called highly speculative assets. No one really is responsible, and no one really backs those up. With CBDCs, we have central banks backing those up, and the motives, of course, much different. You have profit driven for these cryptocurrencies versus interest in stability, efficiency. Yeah, so more monetary and financial stability. But like I've said, specifically, once you look at international payments that could really, these introduction of international or wholesale CBDCs could really overhaul this, the system that we see right now and could be specifically beneficial for these emerging or lower income economies. Bianca, do you want to talk a bit about the system and what we have now with regards to international monetary system? Sure. Thank you so much, Sophia, for this great introduction of CBDC. And I think the next question is, you know, we, we need to understand how the international monetary system works so that we can analyze how CBDC could potentially work for international transactions. So what we see nowadays in the international monetary system, and that's not new, is that it is highly hierarchical. That means that we have a couple of central currencies that are widely used for many different types of transactions, while we have many currencies that we call the peripheral currencies. And these currencies are issued mostly by emerging and developed developing economies with little or no use at all at the international level. Uh, but even among these central currencies, we can see some sort of hierarchy. So we have the US dollar, which has a very, very strong presence at the international level, is what we call the key currency of the international monetary system. And we have other central currencies that are not as strong as the US dollar, for example, the euro, the British pound, and so on. So the way that we look, you know, if we were to try to quantify this hierarchy of money, this hierarchical relationship, we would look, for example, on data on the functions of money at the international level. So for example, if we have a look at the foreign exchange turnover, which is published by the BIS, 
you would see that the US dollar accounts for nearly 90% of the FX turnover, which is, you know, quite a dominant, is a very dominant presence of the US dollar. And some other data, for example, from the SWIFT shows that in terms of international payments, the US dollar accounts for nearly 40%. So this is, you know, shows how strong this currency is in relation to all other currencies in the system. So the data that I just mentioned now is mostly for private transactions, but also in the public sector, we observe a very, very important and dominant role of the US dollar. So when you look at data, for example, on the composition of foreign exchange reserves held by the central banks across the globe, nearly 60% of these uh uh, U.S. dollar-denominated assets. So this is just these figures are just to give you some idea, some illustration of how hierarchical this international monetary system is. So on the technical side, this means that all of these transactions rely on the payment system of the U.S. dollar via something that we call correspondent banking. And these correspondent banking networks are essentially financial intermediaries that make the final payments of any kind of transaction on behalf of the client. So, for example, if you have uh, two companies from two different countries, let's say Brazil and Japan, making a transactions between each other, they will hold bank accounts in their respective countries in their respective domestic banks, and these domestic banks have relationship with what we call correspondent banks in the U.S., for example, because this transaction would most likely be denominated in U.S. dollars. So strong and what we call central currencies in this international monetary system require fewer intermediaries for these international transactions. So not only these transactions are faster, but they are also cheaper. And peripheral economies, on the other hand, they need more intermediaries because their currencies is not so liquid. So the, the market is not so large for these currencies. And this increases not only the length of these transactions, but also the costs. And uh, very recently, some literature has shown that these corresponding banking relationships have declined. And uh, one of the potential reasons is the, the regulation trying to prevent money laundering or trying to combat financing of terrorism and so on. And this has actually increased the risk and the cost of international transactions. But this has not affected all countries in an equal way. So we have seen that the Global South or these countries that issue these peripheral currencies have been affected more, much more than the central economies. So international transactions continue to be very much centered around the US dollar with little challenge to their privileged position. So the next question here, and we are, we are trying to talk about CBDC and whether it poses a threat to this dominant role of the US dollar. So the next question here is to try to understand why is it the case that the US dollar is so dominant in the international monetary system? And Nina, perhaps, would you like to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you very much. So as Bianca said, in a way, one of the big questions for us was, well, if we want to understand whether CBDCs can make a difference to dollar dominance, we partly need to ask the question, well, what is it that makes the dollar so dominant and why has the dollar such a dominant role? 
And of course, there's a massive literature and it's historically grown. And we know that Europe coming out of, of the Second World War and, and America being one of the, the winning nations and, and the Marshall Plan, etc., etc. Of course, Bretton Woods had very important role in setting up the dollar as the global currency. However, we also see, and that's what the literature is very strongly pointing out, that it's being underpinned by key global economic structures which create an inertia and maintain the dollar at the top of what we call this currency hierarchy or monetary hierarchy, which Bianca was referring to, and which we actually also have another podcast which we, which we have made with Leeds University Business School. And that literature then points at two big, big structure factors. On the one hand is the dominance of the dollar in invoicing trade. So the dollar, and Bianca has referred to this already, is the currency which denominates most 70-80% of export contracts, which makes it the dominant currency. And, and this is particularly important from our point of view, and we highlight it in the paper, is that also the dollar is the main what we call funding currency. So most of the international contracts, debt contracts, borrowing contracts are denominated in dollar. Even those outside the US, let's say between Argentina and Brazil, they will be US dollar denominated. And that means that globally, whoever takes on such a dollar contract will also have to demand dollar again. And that in itself, then again, is linked to fundamental structural features of the global economy and the global financial system, which remains dominated by financial institutions from America, from the core, which operate in the dollar and make it those global funding currency. Now, of course, these are underpinned by infrastructures, and Bianca and Sophia are going to talk a bit about more how this, what our conclusions then, to what extent these infrastructures can change these global structures. But at the end of the day, those global structures very much lock in the role of the dollar in the global economy and, and make it so hard to dethrone it. But coming to the crux of the paper, Sophia, do you want to tell us a bit about what are the potential ways or how, how could CBDCs potentially at least diminish the role of the dollar in the global monetary system? And Bianca, then, whether this is actually going to happen. Happy to. So once you really look at CBDCs and because, you know, a lot of the time when we talk about CBDCs, we also talk about a new technology that will be employed. So what we have from an international point of view really is, a blank slate approach, you know, versus the international system kind of grew or it went through evolutionary processes here and kind of modeled it the way through. With inefficiency, clear inefficiency, specifically once you look at this correspondent banking, what internationally operable CBDCs could do is they could start from a clean slate. So once central banks or monetary authorities work together to establish these interoperable CBDCs. Yeah, so that's the key aspect here. A multi-CBDC arrangement could really be envisioned. So you would have, you know, you could get rid of these legacy issues that we're experiencing now, long transaction chains, the re huge reliance on the US dollar, that this currency triangulation that Bianca talked about, difference, you know, small differences that you generally wouldn't think of, like different opening times across different regions for central banks to settle um, payments. All of this could be addressed once you used MCBDC arrangements. So you could use CBDCs and the underlying ledger technology to create CBDCs that, yeah, interoperable, where, where efficiency increases massively, where you could have near instantaneous settlements of payments 
and all that using a central bank currency, yeah, not something like stable coins or cryptocurrencies or some other highly, well, also efficient payments, but highly expensive, yeah, really expensive, and, and some of them edgy. So you could theoretically replace that. It would require, of course, kind of like frameworks that are aligned. It would require, yeah, regulatory, technical frameworks, messaging systems that are all aligned. And it would require legal aspects to be similar within those jurisdictions. So central banks, monetary authorities, governments would have to come together and work, work out contracts, which may in the end be... <laughs> something that is not achievable. Some have argued that that the the amount of well contracts needed to create such a system, while technically possible, would make it well inefficient in a way that you would fall back on the US dollar. Yeah. But that's something, you know, I think still the potential of uh, multiple CBDCs is here. You could on an international level really use these local currencies within the CBDC or multiple CBDC frameworks. However, of course, we also need to live in reality a little. And maybe, Bianca, you could add something here as to why that might be a bit more tricky, aside of the fact that we may have to have multiple contracts, because that clearly can be addressed. Yeah, I would just add, of course, uh, CBDC could potentially bring many benefits to to the economy. So, for example, we would increase potentially the efficiency of the system, both in terms of costs and the length of transactions. We would have access to risk-free money, which is something Sophia was discussing at the beginning of the podcast, which contrasts with non-risk-free money, which is essentially the money that people have in their bank accounts. We could potentially reduce our dependency on the US dollar and encourage transactions, you know, denominated in, in local currencies, especially from emerging and developing economies. And this is addressing a little bit this issue that we discussed before. It's called currency triangulation, in which a person from a peripheral economy has to access the US dollar to then access the currency of another peripheral economy. All of these are potential benefits from the, you know, using a CBDC for international transactions. Another benefit could be that, like Sophia mentioned before, if we create multiple contracts among central banks, we would avoid relying on a single system. So, for example, like we have nowadays with the SWIFT, which essentially gives the power for developed countries to decide who is going to be part of, who is going to be excluded from the system. However, and I guess this is perhaps one of the main conclusions of our paper, CBDC alone is unlikely to change the hierarchical nature of the international monetary system. We would need to change the way how we do finance, how international finance operates. And I think one of the main points that Nina also mentioned before is the issue with the funding currency. Because if most of the funding, the international funding, is denominated in U.S. dollars, this means that who are doing international transactions will always have to demand these U.S. dollars to avoid potential problems of currency mismatch. So essentially, they, are, they will always try to keep both their assets and liabilities denominated in the same currency to avoid this problem. So unless these structural factors change we think that it is very unlikely that the system, the CBDC alone, 
would change and would come with more diversity, would bring new currencies, digital, international digital currencies to be used at the international level. So the discussion here is not only about diversity, but it's mainly about the political willingness or the agent's willingness to change the current system. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Bianca and Sophia. That's been amazing. And if you're interested in reading more about it and getting really into the details, which Sophia loves, you can read our paper. <laughs> it's available. <laughs> and if you're more on the kind of interested in the funding currency, which Bianca and I love, there are also papers on our website. So thank you so much for listening. It's been a pleasure and hope to see you for another podcast. Thank you. Thank you.